Well, this is it. Once again, it's time to go inside EMS. I think I kind of use that opening all the time. I may need to come up with a with a different one. And now, all the way from, I don't know what to say, but with me always, here he is, the guy we call KG, Kelly Grayson. KG, <laughs> what's going on? Oh, not much, man. Just just living my best life. Yeah, how's that working out for you? A little bit of rest and recuperation on the Texas Gulf Coast. Oh, it's my life. It's, it's working out well, man. I, uh... I, I got a little sun and sand and, and good food in the uh, in the last week or so on, on Texas Coastal Bend and and uh, gonna be going back next month do some fishing with friends. It's uh, life is life is good. I was living vicariously through you uh, and watching your fun on your vacation. <laughs> oh yeah, man! I I, um, I ate like a ate like a pig, drank like a fish, and came back and. And and hadn't gained any ex- any weight, so uh, that's that's a good thing. That's uh, right. Apparently, stay, I was you, working it off as much as I was eating. You stayed weight neutral. I'm creeping up on seventy pounds now, man. I'm 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 feeling good about it. So, what have you been doing? Is it just eating better, exercising? I mean, because that's I mean, since December, that's a that's a great Both? accomplishment. I could actually lose weight a lot faster than this, but I I, uh, I haven't been as draconian as I as I have been in the past. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's, there's nothing special about it. I quit eating like an idiot. That's it. I I quit eating, uh, uh, high calorie, uh, low nutrition food. And, uh, I try to expand more calories than I consume. Simple formula, expand more than you consume. And, and if you try to avoid, uh, the, the fried and processed, processed foods those tend to be the most calorie dense anyway um so it's easy pretty easy to be low calorie and 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 low carb uh if you just eat uh fairly healthy foods and and not a whole lot of processed stuff i still haven't embraced uh brian fast's you know don't eat anything white (laughs) i will never drink his almond flavored sadness water but I'm getting better about uh, about what I'm I'm putting into my body, so it's 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 starting to feel good, man. Well, I think we've gone halfway because one of the things that I've started doing is using almond milk to make protein shakes with. So it, you can't really tell a difference, but uh, I think it's a little bit healthier. But you know, so w- one of the things that I was talking about with people is that it's always difficult, it seems, to lose weight. And I've always hit them with the one pound a week club. You know, I mean, all you got to do is there's 52 weeks in a year. All you got to do is lose one pound a week. Just focus on one pound a week. You know, because we don't have time to get into the yeah. gym all the time and eat right all the time. And But if you could just focus on one pound a week at the end of the year, you're down 52 pounds if you need to be. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And 50, 52 pounds is not inconsequential. Uh, that's that's a pretty good weight loss and, and something that should be sustainable long term. Uh, hopefully, I would like to. I would like to do twice that. I'd like to be a hundred pounds down in, in uh, a year, but uh, we'll we'll see. We'll see if I'm if I'm there by Christmas. You got thirty, man. You're you got well. You got three more months to go. So this is month nine, right? Or month eight? Mm-hmm. And uh, you're already at yeah. seventy. So you're you're on a good pace. I mm-hmm. guess. All right, we got to see what the under over is. Yeah, we got to um, bet on Kelly Grayson's. Uh, so let's go ahead and I'll be your bookie. Let's go ahead and take. We'll give them uh, two to one odds on this uh, thirty pounds. But anyway, so Kelly, in your class, your uh, you know we talk about your class all the time. We talk about you know the you know how your folks are learning and the things that you're teaching them. And 
you know, one of the things that came up that you've just recently went through is airway management. And it seems that airway management is one of those skills that is, is really, you know, kind of hit or miss when it comes to EMS, whether you're an EMT or whether you're a paramedic. It seems that there's a lot of ego in airway management. It seems that there's a lot of misconception about airway management. It seems that there's not a lot of comfort with good airway management. It seems that people don't really understand the use of their, you know, what's in their tool bag when it comes to airway management. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it also seems that airway management is a very personal skill. And when I say personal yeah. skill, meaning that I don't know that two people really do it the same. Um, I've got my way of doing it. I know when I'm going to, uh, you know, start with the BLS skills and move to the ALS skills. I'm not quick to jump to intubation. Um, but I thought it would be really good to kind of break down airway management from a BLS, from an ALS side. You being the you know, the uh, expert uh, instructor here, and when it comes to uh, airway management, I thought maybe we just have a little bit of conversation. So if I'm going to kind of give you a a question about it, uh, you know, I like the thought, I I like to think about this in the sense of the misconception. What do you think the biggest Mm -hmm. misconception is about airway management? I think the biggest misconception about airway management is that proper airway management uh, hinges on what tool you use. Um, And I don't think that it's a tool at all. It's an outcome. Um, The the gold standard of airway management has always been taught in EMT and paramedic classes that the gold standard of airway management is endotracheal intubation. And the actual gold standard of airway management is adequate oxygenation and ventilation. And whatever tool you use to achieve that goal uh, meets your gold standard. Um, and too many people view the the willingness to resort resort to invasive airway management as you know as an analog for their own penis, uh, uh, and and they want to. Uh, you're more of a man uh, or a woman. I'm being sexist here. If you're if you're willing to um, uh, in resort to invasive airway management. I don't think that's necessarily the uh, the right approach. You know, I, I, I was talking to my online advanced EMT class uh, last week, and, and I made the point that I have always in my career been good at endotracheal intubation, you know, and I joke and say that I can fall down a flight of stairs and accidentally intubate five people on the way down. I've always been really, really good with a laryngoscope. Now, having said that, I am uh, better at airway management at this point in my career than I have ever been, and I am less likely to intubate someone than I ever have ever been. And, and there's an interesting dichotomy there in that that you, the more confident you are with your skills, uh, and the more skills you have, uh, quite often the less likely you are to apply them because. Because with that mastery of a skill become, comes the context in, in which you apply that skill. And quite often we do it unnecessarily. And, and we recognize, uh, I think you recognize after a while, that, that invasive airways pose their own set of risks and you only do them when necessary. Hey, Kelly, let me ask you a question because you said something that was really interesting. You said that you're more comfortable in your skill. Um, mm-hmm. But it, wouldn't it be that you're more comfortable in your knowledge to know that intubation isn't necessary. I think, I think, and, and I could be wrong here, and I love your opinion about it, is that I think when we're younger in the field, 
when we see the opportunity to innovate, we do it because it's a skill that we think is the is the, like you said the gold standard. It's the pinnacle of airway management. When in fact it's not. But as we start to gain the knowledge, we start to say, you know what? We may not need to intubate this patient. Let's see if I can manage this patient differently. You know, we now talk, you know, talk about, you know, the ability to use CPAP and, and a lot of mm-hmm. different things that we weren't able to use before. But, you know, so you said more comfortable with skill, but I like to challenge you to say it's more comfortable with knowledge. It, it is, uh, but, it, but it's also the skill thing. The, there's the confidence that comes with saying, if I need to resort to this psychomotor skill, if I need to resort to this particular step, I can do it. Now, let's think of a way where, where I can accomplish the same goal without having to do that. Um, so I think it goes, I think it goes hand in hand. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where, uh, Interestingly enough, we were also talking about one of our cognitive biases in, in our patient assessment uh, the other night. We were, uh, we were discussing clinical decision-making and critical thinking and some of, the, some of the things that creep into our clinical decision-making. One of these was commission bias. Uh, and I think early on in your EMT career, you, you focus more on what you do than what you know. And, I, and I've said it before in this podcast that, that I think that's a, a failing common to our profession at all levels is we define ourselves by what we do and not what we know. You know, you, you get some Yahoo in a social media thread that compares himself to nurses. Oh, we do more than the nurses are allowed to do anytime, you know. Uh, once again, defining themselves by what they do rather than a body of knowledge. Um that's a that's a natural thing, you know. Overtreat many, undertreat none. We we think that just because we're uh, we have to do something for the patient to to treat them properly, and that, and that's just simply commission bias. Uh, and as you grow, you realize, well, I can do those things, but I don't necessarily uh, should do those things. Uh, let's let's think of a, a a more holistic approach to to managing the patient, and I think that's where you shift from being a uh, an intubator to someone who can manage an airway and and that's the thing you you know if I can take my my narcotic overdose patient who I've just given Narcan to and if I can watch carefully his pulse oximetry and his capnography readings and when they start to decline uh, reach over and poke him in the shoulder and say yo dude breathe take a breath for me you know and watch those things level out then I'm achieving that gold standard of airway management, and I don't have to intubate them. Uh, one of my students was talking about uh, a partner of his who routinely intubates narcotic overdose patients. And Chris, you have to understand that we're, we don't have in our area the the rash of heroin overdoses and, and fentanyl ex- exposure where people are requiring multiple doses of naloxone uh, to restore respiratory drive. And we have clear protocols in our system that say we only give naloxone for narcotic-induced respiratory depression, not coma, not unconsciousness, only for respiratory depression. Yeah, we've got a paramedic that intubates people that can have their respiratory drive restored with a simple drug. And, and and that's that's a perfect example of, of you know uh, ego over patient care. Um, that guy may be good at intubation, but he sucks at airway management. Yeah, so that's I think that's a good segue, you know, because when we think about that, and I kind of talked about that in the introduction, was that 
uh, you know, th there's a lot of ego when it comes to airway management. One, I, I want to know why there's ego. You know, two, I want to know how do we overcome it. But, you know, I got to think that ego, I can't count the number of times I've heard my peers talk about the rash of guff they get in the emergency room when the nurses are giving them heck about, um, and actually one nurse said this to me one time, why didn't you intubate them? I was like, when you're able to intubate, ask me that question, you know? Yeah. So, but it's still the point of don't question my medicine, you know, don't question. But again, that was an ego. You know, I, I felt attacked and, and then my ego was saying, who the heck do you think you are to question me about that? Um, uh, but, you know, secondarily, when we think about this from an egotistical standpoint, why do we take that umbrage? Why do we have ego in airway management? You know, why do we have to try to intubate somebody 10 times? And one of the things that we had talked about in this podcast uh, before is, you know, as an EMS leader, one of the things I gave my folks was one chance. You got one chance to get a look. Mm -hmm. You got one chance to pass a tube. If you can't intubate this patient, you're going to a rescue airway. And, um, but, but, but where's the ego come from? And how do we fix that? Well, um, I think the ego uh, comes from from school. We teach first of all the the type of people we attract to EMS: Type A personalities, um, uh, doers, not not great on thinking. They're they're in the now. Uh, they're not really interested in, in long term, and they're you know a bit of control freaks. Uh, we attract that 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 demographic to EMS, um, and then we cement that by telling them they have to do things and and pay attention, this could save a life, when in reality, a whole lot of stuff we do doesn't save lives, and we, we really don't know what it does, um, and the things that we do that actually save lives uh, are, are relatively infrequently, um, but as far as, as, you know, the nurse getting snippy with you and, and you clapping back at her, I don't necessarily think that's an ego thing, man, I, I think that you know, she's questioning your medicine, and, and rightfully, you should be incensed at that sort of thing. I think the default for many of the hospital emergency department providers when they look at EMS is, is quite frankly, they look at us as skills monkeys. They don't understand the role we're at, uh, the role we, we play. Uh, what they see is the end product, a patient that has had things done to them or not done to them. Um, so they judge us by this, by this uh, metric that that um, a thorough EMT does more things or a, para, a thorough paramedic does more things to the patient. And hopefully those things make the nurse's life easier. That's their metric for what's a good paramedic. What all things have you done to the patient that makes my life easier? Does the patient have a line when you come in so I don't have to get one? Um, does the patient have a secured airway when you come in so all I have to do is call respiratory to hook up the vent? That sort of thing. Um, and they don't really judge us by the, the, the true metric. Uh, what, uh, what do we know about the patient and what are the, all the things that we haven't done for, for whatever reason? I think the most important things you can do for a patient uh, quite often is, is not doing something. Yeah, I think you're right. One of the things that I think we, we should think about, you know, for the listeners now as we, as we kind of change our thought, you know, we kind of talked about misconception, we kind of talked about ego, what about some of the tips that we can give them, you know, to kind of take their airway management to the next level? I mean, let, I think this really comes down to philosophy and mm -hmm. increasing knowledge. So when we think about it from an EMT standpoint, when we think about it from a paramedic standpoint, if we're going to come up with a few tips to give them to 
to bring their airway management to the next level, what's the first thing you share with them? My personal approach is is the airway continuum, and this is a conceptual model that that uh, uh, Wes Ogilvy and I uh, developed based on the the law and uh, law enforcement officers' use of force continuum, and and that conceptual model that law enforcement officers use is simply. Uh, that um, you should only use the appropriate amount of uh, force for a given situation. And there are different degrees of force. This is something that has been indoctrinated uh, in, in uh, law enforcement academies for many years to help officers choose the, the level of force for a given situation and thus avoid those uh, excessive force lawsuits. So I teach the airway continuum, which is a modification of that. Um, and the, the uh, thrust of the airway continuum is, is you only go as invasive as you need to to control the airway. And if you understand the steps and all of the tools available to you and, and you're proficient with them, then your airway management is much more likely to be reasoned and measured than it is instinctual. And I think instinctual is what we have way too often uh, in pre-hospital care is we, we focus on, on the best airway um, and ignore all the steps in between. So that's why you see someone with a paramedic and they've got a new tool uh, and, and some new things in the toolbox and they're anxious to use that tool and they neglect all the things that they've known how to do since, uh, since they were a basic EMT. Uh, that's your partner's job now if you have an EMT partner. Uh, and, and they go straight to the, uh, to the intubation. So I teach the, the airway continuum. There are six basic steps to it. Uh, and, and each step is, is fairly self-explanatory. Level one is just positioning and supplemental oxygen. If you can position a patient appropriately and give them supplemental oxygen and help them maintain their own oxygenation, then your airway is apt to stay uh, uh, self-patent for, for quite a bit longer. And level two is, of course, suctioning and, and beta agonists, making sure that the lower airways are open and sustaining the patient's breathing. Level three, we move to non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, or CPAP. Uh, level four, we, we move to BLS airway adjuncts, the traditional ones like nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal airways. Level five, we move to superglottic or extraglottic airways, the newer dual lumen or LMA devices where the eye gel is becoming extremely uh, popular and for good reason. And level six is endotracheal intubation. And, and like the law enforcement officers, uh, use of force continuum, uh, a level five or a level six intervention triggers an automatic internal review and audit to make sure that the, that level of care was appropriately rendered uh, and appropriate for the given situation. And and that's that's my conceptual model. There are others out there uh, for how to approach airway management, but I think that gives people a lot better, uh, a more measured approach to what is necessary to controlling someone's airway or managing someone's airway rather than which hunk of plastic you use. So I think when we think about, I mean, this is really interesting, and I think this is really kind of a best practice when you think about what level you're going to jump into. How do you determine what level you're picking? I mean, so it, sometimes you're going to see a, you're going to see a patient that they're talking to you, and you're able now to take them through level one. But how do you develop the knowledge to know maybe you're coming in at a, a patient who's at a level three? And they're deteriorating fast. I mean, so where does that knowledge come in that gives you the opportunity to to see a patient, to assess the patient, 
make the determination what's going on with them, and then adjust to that level. Well, I think I think your your interview, your patient assessment, your physiologic findings, uh, and and coupled with your technological findings as well. You know, for example, level of consciousness plays a huge role, but there, it's more nuanced than that. Um, a hypoxic patient will be anxious and 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 uh, tachycardic quite often, and and anxious and inconsolable in the children and, and uh, they'll be your classic hypoxic patient yet when when this patient starts to get lethargic and obtunded uh, it's more than simple hypoxia that you can fix by supplemental oxygen uh, that's more likely to be hypercapnia when their co2 levels start to rise they start to get a little little dopey and, and a little lethargic and and, and uh, their level of consciousness starts to decline so Knowing that, knowing that you move beyond a simple airway, I mean a simple oxygenation issue uh, to an oxygenation and ventilation issue, uh, gives you some some better uh, idea of what management uh, device you need to use. Uh, for example, if that patient is on the decline uh, level of consciousness wise, uh, you're beyond level three. You're really you're beyond CPAP. Uh, and it's to the point where you need to control the airway because the patient's not going to do it well uh, anymore. Um, and but but that measured approach to it, uh, your your CO2 and your pulse oximetry readings and your and your physiologic findings uh, uh, in your your clinical assessment of the patient is going to play a large role. And there are always going to be red flag conditions where if the patient looks a certain way now but they're not going to be that way 10 minutes from now and, and we know what those are those things with with a rapidly declining level of consciousness or uh or rapidly swelling airway those are do not pass go proceed directly to level six uh kind of things and, and but now we have better tools for that if you've got the patient uh with airway burns and they're swelling and they're hoarse and stridorous and They've got soot in their airways, and and you know that if you wait another five minutes, you're going to be achieving level six with an with a scalpel rather than a laryngoscope. Then you proceed to that point directly, um, and we've got better ways to do it now. We and rather than than take the huge step of RSI, um, then then we can we can administer ketamine, you know, and snow somebody enough yet still retain most of their hemodynamics and their respiratory drive. Uh, but but get them able to accept that tube, um, and I think that that as an industry we're getting better at it. You know, case in point, uh, Jeff Jarvis's people at, at Williamson County EMS and the protocol they use to to manage airways and their mantra of resuscitate then into now, and they're focusing paramedics on down, focusing on that BLS airway management and getting that patient's oxygenation status corrected before they try an invasive airway maneuver and that's paying dividends for them you know they don't have all this peri-intubation hypoxia and poor outcomes uh that they were having even when they had uh a successfully placed airway uh endotracheal tube on the first pass um and it was the focus on the bls airway management that that was part and parcel of that so I think that it, as an industry, we're getting better. Uh, more people need to adopt those practices, and 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 maybe one day, if we're if we're better uh, at that, then uh, we won't be asking that that question if endotracheal intubation is eventually going to be taken away uh, from EMS professionals. But hey, that's what we think. 
We'd like to hear what you think. What are your tips and tricks to airway management? What's more important to you, uh, BLS or ALS? Or is it not, or is that an artificial distinction? Is it simply a continuum of care uh, like I propose? We'd like to hear your thoughts on it at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Ciballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week. <laughs>